In this evening, congregation, we would invite your attention to be turned to the book of Micah. Uh, we'll read this evening the first chapter and then focus especially uh, in an introductory type of a manner upon the first verse. So the words of our text are found in Micah 1, verse 1. We'll read the first chapter in its entirety. The bulletin indicates that you can find this on page 1070 uh, in the Pew Bible. Micah 1. Hear now the reading of the Word of God. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. Therefore I will wail and howl, I will go striped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wounds are incurable. For it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Beth Aphra. Roll yourself in the dust. Pass by in naked shame, you inhabitant of Shephir. The inhabitant of Zanon does not go out. Beth Ezel mourns. Its place to stand is taken away from you. For the inhabitant of Maroth pined for good, but disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. O inhabitant of Lachish, harness the chariot to the swift steeds. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore you shall give presents to Morsheth Gath. The houses of Exib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Mersha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. Thus far this evening, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation underneath the providence of the Lord our God, we have the opportunity this evening not only to resume uh, preaching twice on a Sunday, but also we have the opportunity to begin uh, a series of sermons working textually through a book of the Bible uh, by a continuous exposition. At least that is our goal and our intended desire. Uh, we will move through the book of Micah. Now, some might ask, why choose Micah? And there's a variety of reasons, some practical, uh, some more pastoral. It is my understanding that 
of Reverend Pontier has led this congregation through a consideration of the Gospel according to Mark over the past months. Uh, I believe, of course, as he does and as all of you do, that all 66 books of the Bible are inspired and are profitable for our instruction that we might become mature sons and daughters of the living God. I've made it my practice and my former charge to seek to have a balance of considering a New Testament book and then considering an Old Testament book, and then also having a variety even within the Testament. So considering poetical, uh, then considering prophetical. And so in an attempt to balance, uh, we return to the Old Testament. Uh, but I also believe that Micah, and future weeks we trust will show this, Micah is relevant for our contemporary age. And so in an attempt to pursue balance in our consideration and in our study of the Word of God, we turn to an Old Testament passage uh, to a prophet Micah who ministered, as we'll see in a few moments, in a day and in an age that is eerily unique and similar to our own day and to our own age. Allow me by way of introduction also to make this comment as we begin this series of sermons through the book of Micah. I've often said and thought that an introductory sermon is helpful in many of the similar ways to the setting of a table is helpful in the enjoyment of a meal. You will know, of course, that the Bible often speaks about the Word of God being bread for our soul, being nourishment for our soul. So in many ways, the analogy fits that when we come here on a Sunday morning and on a Sunday evening, we do so desiring to receive food from our souls from the Word of God. Well, with that analogy, I want you to think of an introductory sermon such as tonight as a table-setting sermon. Now, boys and girls... Uh, your mom, your, she makes a, a meal, maybe even your favorite meal, and you come home from school and you're, you're really hungry. Maybe you've had a, a busy day at school and you just can't wait to eat. You can smell uh, what your mother has prepared for you. But you know, as well as I know, before you can eat, at least if you're going to do it in an organized, civil way, which your mother will insist upon, the table has to be set first. There has to be plates put out and there has to be uh, the silverware put out uh, and, and cups have to be placed on the table. And maybe hot pads have to go on the table. And all of that is done so that you can eat in a civilized manner. Now you might say, well, setting the table isn't as exciting as actually eating the meal. I would agree with you. But setting the table is important if you are going to enjoy the meal. And So I want you to think tonight that we're setting the table for the meal that we hope to enjoy of God's Word in the forthcoming weeks from the book of Micah. So tonight, this theme, an introduction to the book of Micah, we'll notice first of all, the author of the book of Micah. Uh, then secondly, we'll consider the setting of the book of Micah. And then thirdly, the message of the book of Micah. So we have an introduction because it is our plan, uh, our hope to continue moving through the book of Micah section by section in the forthcoming weeks and months. So an introduction to the book of Micah. First of all, the author. Secondly, the setting. And then thirdly, the message. So first of all, the author of the book of Micah. And here you'll notice that we're already going to bind ourselves, you might say, to the text. It is our desire, not just tonight and not just in forthcoming weeks, but in all of the weeks and months and years that the Lord may give us, to never say anything from this pulpit that does not come from the text of Scripture. 
I well remember, and I trust I will never forget, at least I hope I will never forget, as long as I have my senses, one of my professors in seminary saying this statement, everything you say in a sermon must flow out of the text. And he went on and he said, train your people. Train your people to take what you say in your sermon and look back at the text and say, now where did he get that from? And so if I ever say anything from this pulpit and you look at the text and you go, well, that's an absolute marvel that he got that out of the text. That's not necessarily a good thing. It may be a very dangerous thing. Much more complimentary and much more safe is if you have the ability to take what I say and look at the text and go, oh, that's where he got that. It's right there. So in our first point, an introduction to the author of the book of Micah, uh, we simply read the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth. And you'll notice that there is something there of the secondary author and of the primary author. So a few words about the secondary author. We have to admit, not much is known about Micah. Now He came out of a rural setting. He was, of course, called by God, the Lord God, to engage in the work of a prophet in the 8th century B.C. before Christ. In the days, as again our text mentions, of the kings of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, These are the days in which the northern ten tribes of Israel have already gone off into apostasy. Uh, They're for all practical purposes gone. Uh, The two and a half tribes to the south continue on in some measure of spiritual faithfulness. I say some measure because they're always tottering, so to speak, on the brink of apostasy. Now, during the days of Micah, uh, there is, so to speak, an economic boom that is happening uh, in the southern tribes. They're experiencing financial prosperity. Uh, In many ways, they're living a life of comfort and of ease as trade and as commerce are flowing. So their practical lives are lives that are fruitful and rather comfortable and rather easy. And it is into that context uh, that Micah is called to engage in the work of a prophet. Now Micah, the very name means, and we'll reference this at the conclusion of the sermon from Micah 7 verse 18, the very name Micah means who is like God. And just think about that again, boys and girls. How many times doesn't your mother and your father call you by name? Maybe some of the mothers... Say, well, it can be hundreds of times within a week. It can be thousands of times within one's lifetime. But imagine Micah as he grew up and then also as he labored, every time his name is called, there is this declaration, who is like God? Not implying that Micah is like God, but it's begging the question, And this sets forth something of the exclusivity of our Lord God and of His character. And so Micah will walk into the economic prosperous country of Israel and he will ask this question, who is like our God as this nation brings on the precipice of spiritual apostasy? And now I want to just also note the role of the secondary author. Uh, And if you're taking notes, I would jot this down in your notes that Micah is a prophet. 
And boys and girls, I trust you learn in Sunday school and in catechism and school and in your home and also here uh, from the preaching of the Word, that there were three offices in the Old Testament. There was the office of king and the office of priest. And then there was the office of prophet. And each office had its own distinct role, its own distinct activity. And of course, all three offices point forward to the coming person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But a prophet, according to Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, had this unique role. He was to receive the Word of God from God, and he then was to declare that Word of God to the people of God. So there is a receptive role. The prophet was not to just come and say, well, I thought maybe it would be helpful for me to share these thoughts and these ideas with you. The prophet was not to speak anything of himself. He was simply to declare the oracles of God to the people of God. And that also gives us this point of application in regards to the public ministry of the church and especially of the office of minister or pastor or teaching elder, whatever term you want to use. We're not going to quibble tonight over the terminology. But the man who is called by God to stand in a pulpit is duty-bound to receive the words that he speaks from God himself. And that's why, and it's not just a mere symbolic act, but that's why we open our Bibles. That's why before the sermon we always read a text of Scripture. That's why constant references are made to the Word of God. What we say to you, we do not just imagine throughout the week within our own mind, but rather hopefully we go and we dig from the Word of God so that we in the function of a prophet may then stand in the presence of the people of God and say, this is the mind of the Lord. This is the Word of the Lord. And so on your end of it, so to speak, as a congregation, and I would say this to anyone who hears these words, whether it be here in person or whether it be through the radio, internet, there ought to be a holy insistence when we gather together that the man who stands behind the pulpit comes with a word from God. And if it's not a word from God, get rid of the man. And and stop practicing whatever it is that's being done, because if it is not the proclamation of the Word of God, then it is not preaching. Then it is not going to be edifying for the souls of the people of God. You and I, we don't gather here to speak bluntly to be entertained. If you want entertainment, there's all kinds of persons who can entertain far better than I can. We come into the holy assembly of worship to praise our God, to glorify our God, and also to receive nourishment, spiritual nourishment for our souls. And what our souls need is not an hour of entertainment on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening, but our soul needs the Word of God. And so Micah fulfills this role as secondary author of receiving an oracle from God to give to the people of God. But I also want to note the primary author And so you note also in verse 1 of our text, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. So on one hand, and this is what we mean when we speak about a secondary authorship, on one hand, the words that follow in the book of Micah are the words of Micah. But ultimately, the primary author is the Lord Himself. 
And, and what this does is it underscores the supernatural origin of both Micah, but then by extension supported by texts such as what you find Paul saying to Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And also what Peter says, uh, the Scriptures did not come uh, through man himself, but rather men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And, and this underscores what we call the doctrine of inspiration. We believe, and we'll get to this interestingly enough, as there is an organic unity to the truth of God, we'll get to this in our consideration of the Belgic Confession. We believe that this book, from front to back, all 66 books are inspired by God. Now what exactly does that mean? That the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, moved in a supernatural way upon the human authors so that when the human authors spoke or writ or wrote, that it was not just merely their words, but that every single word in the original Scriptures comes forth from God Himself. Now this doctrine has been attacked vehemently uh, ever since the age of Satan himself, when he came to Eve and said, hath God really said? Satan also attacked this doctrine when he tempted the Lord Jesus Christ. And Satan attacked the doctrine of the inspiration of the Scriptures, especially with the Enlightenment and rationalism in the 18th century and the 19th century. And you can do a historical survey, and it's dreadful in its consequences when individual persons or institutions or churches begin to doubt and deny the inspiration of Scripture you know that it is the beginning of the end. Because once you doubt the Word of God, all confidence of faith is lost. And so it is not just simply the words of Micah that need to somehow be decontextualized so that we can find some kernel of truth hidden away in the words of Scripture. It is the Word of Micah, but it is the Word of the Lord our God. And may I say, especially to the young people in the congregation, this is a bedrock that you can build a life on. Knowing and believing that all Scripture is given by inspiration. Uh, we theologically use the term verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal being this idea that every single word in the original manuscript is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Plenary being that all of the words, the fullness of Scripture, whether it be the historical sections, whether it be the poetical sections, or the prophetic sections. And you and I need to have this confidence when we open up our Bible, wherever we turn, whether it be Genesis, whether it be Deuteronomy, whether it be Psalm, whether it be a prophet, or whether it be an account of the Gospel, or whether it be one of Paul's epistles, or whether it be the book of Revelation, that here we have the Word of God. There are at least two implications from that we ought to note. This Word is an authoritative Word because it is the Word of God. Not only is it an authoritative Word, it is also a relevant Word. What we read in the book of Micah, although in its original context took place in the 8th century before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, still speaks to you and to myself in our own day. All of this flows out of the understanding that the Word of Micah is the Word of the Lord. And so much for the introduction to the author of the book of Micah. 
Uh, we then turn to consider briefly the setting of the book of Micah. And as we said, the historical setting, this book and these oracles and this prophetic ministry of Micah took place in the 8th century before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we just want to say a few things about what life was like in Israel during that time. And again, if you're taking notes, you could just write down, it was a setting of social prosperity. Social prosperity. Especially in the economic realm. You might say that the bank accounts were full for the people of Israel in the days of Micah. Through a variety of political alliances and governmental tactics, bringing about a certain measure of peace with the Assyrians, certain treaties, there was this prosperity so that the bank accounts were filled and there was a life of ease for many in Israel. But that led, and we'll note this as we move through oracle by oracle, that led to a selfish materialism. The covenant people of God, the remnant, the two and a half tribes in the south, they were characterized by a selfish materialism. What we today would call secular materialism. They, to put it bluntly, were living for the here and the now. They were living with a pursuit of hedonism. They wanted to enjoy all they could of the created realm now. And as they were consumed by this selfish materialism, their eyes were being drawn off of their covenantal Lord God. And they began to slink, uh, sink even deeper uh, into the depths of apostasy. So there is this setting of social prosperity, but also a setting of pending exile. And here you can imagine the people living. And one day led to the next day. And there was enough money to go around, at least for those who were uh, the upper class individuals residing in Jerusalem and the surrounding geographical territory. But off on the horizon, so to speak, uh, there are the Assyrian armies preparing underneath the providence of God to carry off the remnant into exile. A most devastating development for the covenant people of God. A development that we'll look at again as we move through oracle after oracle of Micah. But we need constantly when we read a section in Micah to think, okay, what was life like in their day? Well, things were good in a certain sense of the word that the majority of the residents of Jerusalem had substantial means, monetary means, but life was not good. And that their hearts were growing cold and colder by the day. They were drifting away from faithful obedience and covenantal love with the Lord their God. And they were on the brink of apostasy and exile. And, and this is also true of our age. There are so many cultural experts from a Christian perspective who look at Western culture and say things are different to some extent. Something's changing. Something's happening. And so you can read all types of statistics. And we do so knowing that God knows those who are His. And that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will certainly be built. But nevertheless, there is a dire warning on the horizon for Western civilization when it comes to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The churches are being vacated. Uh, the, the people 
by and large have itching ears as Paul prophesied. They want to hear something that will satisfy them. They want to hear something that will compliment them. They want to hear something that will congratulate them. All the while, people are at relative ease in Western society, even as the very foundations of a Christian world are crumbling. And so given what we've said with the primary author of the book of Micah being the Lord God Himself, this is a very relevant book for our day and also for our culture and our context. Now the spiritual setting, just to trace this out before we move into our third point, the spiritual setting is kind of a back and forth. Uh, there's one king who arises who is an evil king and reintroduces all types of evil practices. And you notice already when you read Micah 1, the, the most identified evil practice is that of idolatry. And ultimately it comes down to worship. What is the sin of Samaria? What is the sin of Jerusalem? That they have fabricated an imaginary way in which to worship an imaginary God. And this points out the fact that much of Judah was just going through spiritual formalism. Whether that be full-blown idolatry or whether that just be a form of externalism in following the Jewish rituals, there was this just mere formalism. And formalism is so deadly because... It has the form of the appearance of godliness, but it denies the power thereof. And in recent decades, we have seen something of the devastating effect of spiritual formalism. Because when people do what they do in worship, just because that's what they've always done, there comes a day, especially when younger generations say, why in the world should we continue to do this? And both to the older generation and to the younger generation. If the only answer we have for the next generation of the church is we do this this way because we have always done it this way, that will not satisfy. That will not satisfy a younger generation. And so I'm sure there are people more knowledgeable than myself who can say many things about why the young people are leaving the church en masse. But I would contribute just this observation. It is because young people see through mere formalism. And if all we can say to our young people are, we do what we do because we've always done what we've always done, we need to develop a more biblical answer than that. Why do we gather in the evening hour of the Sabbath day in the assembly of the saints? We do so in light of the statement of Psalm 92. It is good. It is good to worship our God on the Sabbath day. Both in the morning and in the evening. You see the difference between that type of an answer and just, well, that's what we do. We've always done that. And we will always continue to do that. So there is this danger of spiritual formalism. There's also the danger of covenantal presumption. And these often go together. Covenantal presumption is just an individual person deriving confidence from the external relationship that they have with the covenant God. Placing all of our hope and all of our confidence in the fact that we have had the waters of baptism land upon our infant forehead. You see how 
formalism and presumption go together? I'm in a conservative Reformed church. And I'm in that conservative Reformed church Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And I've been baptized in that conservative Reformed church. And then presumption and formalism goes on and it begins to speak the, the language of the Pharisee. In fact, I thank you, O God, that I am not like the other persons. Perhaps even in Pala, Iowa. Because I do this and I do that. And then we cast our eyes and we find that person and we say, and I thank you, O God, that I am not like him or not like her if we ever find ourselves saying or maybe thinking such things, we ought to be warned of the danger of spiritual formalism and covenantal presumption. Well, so much for this evening, for the setting. Then we transition into the message in our third point of the book of Micah. Uh, Micah presents a message of judgment and of hope. And Lord willing, our voice will hold up because we have to get to the second sub-point of the third point, and that is the message of hope. But there is also a strong message of warning. And I fully recognize that this is not popular in our day. It is not popular to preach on the judgment of God, and on divine wrath, and on righteous retribution. But we are bound by the text, are we not? And when the Word of the Lord that comes to the covenant people of God through the prophet Micah speaks a word of warning about divine judgment, then we are obligated, we are bound, if we would be a faithful herald, to preach on the judgment of God. So Micah is given the necessary but unpleasant task of walking through Jerusalem as the inhabitants enjoy the material prosperity as they live out life on the brink of spiritual apostasy. And Micah is called to say there is a coming judgment upon, yes, even those who presume and engage in religious formalism. There is a coming judgment. Are you and I aware of that? Are you and I prepared for that? Now, the church largely has grown silent on such things, but... God is an unchangeable God. And in the midst of the multitude of His attributes, there is also the attribute of His holy and righteous character. His holy and His righteous character that cannot tolerate sin. And His holy and His righteous character that must deal definitively with sin by an act of infinite punishment. Now you can... You can allow the world to say whatever it wants to say about how this is just old-fashioned, antiquated theology. I simply ask you to test what we say about a God who punishes sin with infinite wrath according to the words of Holy Scripture. And there you will see that the question, who is like God, is answered in part that God is a righteous judge. There is a coming time in which every single one of us will have to stand before that righteous judge. And our actions and our words and the very thoughts and intents of our hearts will be exposed according to the perfect and holy and righteous character of God. God has appointed a day for you and for me to be judged. 
This is part of what Micah has to go throughout the town of Jerusalem and the surrounding communities proclaiming. But then thanks be to God that He also comes with a message of hope. And we need to be clear tonight, because as another minister told me upon my examination for the candidacy into the ministry, he, he told me, and I can, I can still hear his words reverberate in my mind, he said, remember every time you preach there may be somebody sitting in the congregation who hears his first sermon or his last sermon. What is our hope? Is our hope just that the economy will continue to do well? That the stock market will continue to increase? That the money will continue to flow? That the material possessions will continue to arrive so that we can live a life of comfort and of ease? All of those things, yes, can be blessings of God that are to be received with humility and joy and gladness. But our hope, our hope has to be in something greater than that. Our hope has to be in God. Now, boys and girls, I want to confess something to you. I know probably your teachers say you're never supposed to peek in the back of a book when you start reading a book. So maybe you're reading a book at school. And you're in chapter 1 or you're in chapter 2. And your teacher says, don't, don't look in the back of the book. Tonight, I want to look in the back of the book. So if you've kept your Bible open, turn forward to the very ending. Micah chapter 7. And here, congregation, is our hope. Verse 18. Who is a God like you, hardening iniquity? and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage. He does not retain His anger forever, because He delights in mercy. Just pause there and ask yourself, are you fully aware that our Lord God delights in mercy? Yes, we must speak of divine judgment. But we also get to speak about mercy. Our God is a righteous judge. But He is also a God, especially in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, who delights in mercy. In mercy shown even to the chief of sinners. And in His mercy, He pardons iniquity and He passes over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage. And so Micah continues in verse 19, He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. And so as we introduce ourselves into the book of Micah, we take a peek at the end, at the conclusion. And we say, this is our comfort. This is our hope. This is our confidence. That our God is a God who delights in mercy. And that that mercy is even a restorative mercy. Many of us have the painful experience of past sins. Of past broken relationships. Maybe it's secretive. No one else knows it. Maybe it's somewhat of a public nature. And other persons are aware of the brokenness in life. Well, how do you go forward in light of that brokenness? 
We say to one another, who is a God like our God? Our God delights in mercy. He passes over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage. He will not always keep His anger, but He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do glorify You and we exalt Your most holy name for You have displayed unto us through the words of Micah the fullness of Your attributes. And yes, we with humility recognize that You are a God of justice and a God of righteousness. And we do praise You for those attributes. But we also especially rejoice tonight that we can proclaim through the words of Micah that You are also a God of mercy. And that in Your mercy You pardon our iniquities. And You pass over the transgressions of us, the remnant of Your heritage. So we ask that You would teach us much in the forthcoming weeks as we make our way through this book. May we know something even greater of the answer to the question, who is a God like us? We pray that You then would bless us in the evening hour of this day for Jesus' sake. Amen.